Welcome to the Shoot This Now podcast. My name is Tim Malloy. My name is Matt Donnelly, and here on the Shoot This Now podcast, we discuss all the amazing ideas, anecdotes, magazine articles, ancient legends, and many other sort of, I don't know, what would you call them, narratives we think should be made into film or television. And the only rule, Tim, what's the only rule of our podcast? It can't be something that's already in development. Because if we were like, oh, the Dark Phoenix saga should be a movie, people would go, yeah, you're not a genius. Yeah. That's already going to be a movie. Chaos Walking. 100 out of times out of 100, we pick what gets made into movies. No, we just have to share stories that seem ripe for adaptation. And we look at this as fans. What do we want to spend two or three hours watching on a screen? Mm-hmm. Or 20 to $25 to uh, see. Yes. Streaming subscription services, whatever. This one is thematic. Um, yes. I have it's very gotten, big in scope. I have gotten sick. In order to really commit to this, to this part, you actually, I've, I have, I didn't realize. Yes, you did contract a common disease, treatable by the subject of mm-hmm. our podcast this week, mm-hmm. and that is Tylenol. Tylenol. Should we tell them the backstory on this? Um, yeah, I have a whole timeline of what happened in this oh, case. Oh, I just mean how it occurred to us in the first. Oh, place. Oh, absolutely. So Tim and I met up with a or journalists in our day jobs and just ninja podcasters by night. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim and I had uh, a lunch with a bigwig in PR and crisis communications, and we were talking about the mess that Facebook finds themselves in, and, and yeah. specifically Mark Zuckerberg, and how this this pro was sort of like dumbfounded that he waited so long to say something. So we were talking about like what are good examples of crisis PR mm-hmm. and uh, our source was just like totally reverent and blown away by the handling of 1982's national crisis, the Tylenol tampering case. Or as we're going to call them, the Tylenol murders. Because, because these that's were what they were called at the time. Indiscriminate ruthless, truly evil murders. Yes. So tell the good people what happened to the Tylenol and then we'll get into the time, the timeline, the Tylenol. No, it didn't work. The, well, we tried. The Tylenol. <laughs> All right. Our story is basically a monster movie. We know that in monster movies, the monster isn't really the bad guy. No one's mad at King Kong for being King Kong. We're mad at all of the humans who screw up the handling of King Kong or try to exploit King Kong or do other bad things instead of letting Kong be Kong. Um, It's not a perfect analogy, but the monster in this case is the poisoner. Um, The story is more about the way people react to the the presence of the monster. One person reacts very well, and one person reacts very badly. Poorly. Um, They're both a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Um, There's a good middle-aged white guy and a bad middle-aged white guy. as is often true of any elevator you go into. <laughs> um, <laughs> the story starts September 29th, 1982, Ooh. with seven completely innocent people dying. The first one is a 12-year-old girl. Ugh. Another is a postal worker who decides to stay home from work with a chest cold. Um, by 11.54 a.m., he's in a coma. His brother and sister-in-law come over to his house to plan the funeral arrangements They both have headaches. Someone mentions to them, oh, there's some Tylenol in the bathroom. Oh, my God. They take the Tylenol. Um, This is the Janus family. And they also die. So So essentially in the same 24-hour period, 
three members in the Janice family die. In addition to four other victims. Insane. Absolutely awful. Um, so this is just a calamitous, terrible day. On September 30th, um, Tylenol realizes what's happened. They issue a $100,000 reward. They try to decide what to do. And at this point, we enter the good guy of our story, mm-hmm. um, James Burke, who is at the time the CEO of Tylenol. Johnson & Johnson, rather, the CEO of Johnson Johnson. The it, Johnson Johnson owned the imprint company that made Tylenol. Yeah. And you had such a good idea for who should play him? Uh, I think it should be Michael Keaton, because Burke is sort of like a... Um, he's a hero in this, but Keaton did a beautiful job playing... Um, what is Roy... Oh, you're, you're talking about Gung Ho, the movie where he has to compete with the Japanese auto workers? No, not that. Mr. Talk- Mom, the I'm, one where he stays home from work? No, it's where he wears a r- rubber Batman. black suit. Batman. Yes, it's Batman. Yeah. No, it's a movie called The Founder, which came out last year or two <laughs> years ago now, where um, Keaton played the man who, is, who effectively stole the McDonald's uh, fast food empire from the brothers McDonald and made it into the incredible business that it is today. I but anyway, that movie. He looks kind of similar to James Burke, who my head will call Jim Burke, um, but he's the CEO that knew, um, I think, knew, had a deep understanding of what his product was. That that, and oftentimes, as they do, things that are in woven into the national identity, like Tylenol, yeah. are often more um, ephemeral than they are practical. Mm. It's just like how um, when the alligator ate that three-year-old at Disney. Yeah. Um, it's a massive brand violation because Disney isn't and- a park or a princess or a song. Disney is safety. And by the way, thanks for bringing this up because we went almost seven minutes without me worried about us getting sued for libel. Oh, so cool. This is great. great. Thank you. Good example. Disney is a football. By the way, you can look up that autopsy report because an alligator ate a three-year-old at the park. Fair. Um, but that's a, so it's a violation of the safety that the brand promises you, that your kid is safe in front of Netflix and it watches a Disney movie, and that your kid is safe when you're at the park having a sunset stroll along the lake or not. So I think the Tylenol case was a real violation of a, a core American value of something as innocuous as medicine for your headache or for your sick child. You know, the, it was an alligator or a crocodile? It was a crocodile. It's interesting because that is a classic. No, it was an alligator. Was I an wrote alligator? these stories. It was an alligator. Yeah. The alligator is a classic monster movie scenario because no one's like, God, that alligator. Yeah. People are like, why weren't there signs up? Or why weren't there more signs up? Or why wasn't there better security? Or why wasn't there? We're looking for the humans who are responsible for this, not the alligator. Um, and in this case, if James Burke had been running the show, yeah. um, he probably would have responded to it pretty responsibly and pretty quickly. Right. Because what he decided to do is within a week, remove 31 million bottles of Tylenol from store shelves. Yes. And that is a decision that cost Tylenol $100 million. In 1982. In 1982, which in modern money is like... $101 million. No, I'm kidding. I'm not a mathematician. So uh. there's this wiseacre, um, Jerry Della Famima. Wiseacre? He's a wiseacre who is... Can you tell me what that means? He's a guy who cracks wise. <laughs> Across a multitude of acres, and he—I did. Tim is looking at a 1982 phrase book because that's how committed he is to the telling of this movie. Hey, Wiseacre, want to go to the disco with us? Play some Pac-Man. Um, to throw another nickel in the Nickelodeon, why don't you? <laughs> Jerry Delafamima may sound familiar to you because he is one of the inspirations for Mad Men. Oh, what? Yeah, he's one of the ad men who inspired (gasps) Oh, yes, I love this part. Go ahead. And he always says clever, witty things. And one of the clever, witty things he said was, I'd like to hire the guy who can turn Tylenol's image around after this because then he can turn the water in the water cooler into wine and we'll have a wine cooler. Yeah. 
And that's how the and wine that's cooler. how Bartles and James was invented. <laughs> what a beautiful movie. Not really. But he did say that about the water cooler turning into a wine cooler. So Jerry Delafemima, who's like the grand old man, um, the big hot shot of advertising, is just absolutely ridiculing what a bad spot Tylenol is in. So we're at a dark point for James Burke. He's wondering if he's done the right thing. He's wondered if he's overreacted by pulling all of their product off the shelves. Mm-hmm. Then they test 8 million of the 31 million bottles and find that 75 of them had cyanide inside them. So we realized at this point that the decision he made that people thought might be a disaster, that the FBI and FDA told him not to do. Mm-hmm. They said he didn't need to go that far. That his decision to pull those tablets saved at least 75 people's lives. Yeah, that's super important. And we can extrapolate out and figure that he may have saved even more lives. Um, just, just an incredibly criticized risky decision from a corporate standpoint that turned out to be exactly the right decision from a human being standpoint. Right. Um, he also goes on Donahue, he goes on 60 Minutes, and he insists on being as public with this as he can possibly yeah. be. Yeah, so th- in our conversation that sort of sparked this idea for this podcast, the the source we were with said that um, uh, the Burke's advisors at the time were like, total blackout, let's deal with this in a vacuum, and he said absolutely not, and invited what I believe are the news cameras from 60 Minutes into the office every day for a week, um, and insisted on total transparency as they rebuilt, which is like sort of like, I think, again, hints to his understanding of the larger significance, cultural significance of Tylenol, that the only way they would ever get a mother to give an aspirin to a child with a fever ever again was to completely show how, and also, by the way, in the process, invent a tamper-proof system, which we still use today, yeah. um, which is the cotton and the plastic, yeah. um, uh, in the midst of this crisis, which is, like, beyond savvy, it's almost sympathetic. Like, I, I hope that he, like, has parking tickets somewhere because he seems like too much of an angel. Well, understand. he's dead. Oh, which cool. Is, which is really good for anybody Us. who wants to make this movie. Yeah. They can do anything they want with no the No life rights. <laughs> Um, um, God rest his soul. God rest his soul, and God bless the Burke family. But then I, I think from this point, you and I have differing visions of how this movie should play out, so should we share our takes? Well, I have an ending for this segment of the movie. Okay. I think the movie might be a two-parter. Huh. This, this segment ends with Tylenol bouncing back. By February, just a few months later, they reclaimed almost all of their market share. Which is 35 to 45%, by the way. They're back at 28% by February. Unreal. Yeah, incredible. That's like a Lazarus move. And some other wiseacre, probably the guy who inspired Pete in Mad Men, if I had to guess. The worst. S- sends Jerry Della Femina a cooler full of wine oh. to put in his sparklets water machine. Wiseacres all. And I think the movie should end with the whole office getting drunk and then everybody taking Tylenol. Uh, for a hangover. How beautiful. Hangover. Yeah. Um, when I read the, the real layout of... Seven people dying on the same day uh, of the same sinister, horrible cause to me is like it's such a hard, it's such a rare and terrifying thing. Especially because, like you said, there's no one monster to blame except for the actual murderer. Right. But the way that this these deaths were sort of disseminated through a harmless shelf product reminded me instantly of Contagion, mm-hmm. a Steven Soderbergh movie, uh, where Gwyneth Paltrow, love you, girl contracts a rare and deadly disease on a business trip to Hong Kong <laughs> and brings it right back to the U.S. and kills pretty much a significant portion of the worldwide population Yeah. Um, in a pandemic. But what in my mind I see is, and let me just give you guys some context for what kind of panic this was, because it wasn't just about diminishing the brand of Tylenol. 
at the time, uh, BuzzFeed Blue, which is an investigative uh, mystery team at BuzzFeed, <laughs> just did a thing about this do, last year. Do they have a van? They don't have a van, but I feel like it's a Vespa. <laughs> it's the BuzzFeed Blue Vespa that has a bucket seat. Um, they estimated 100,000 individual newspaper articles about this, oh my God. Uh, about this incident. Um, hospitals and poison control centers un- overrun with people terrified they had symptoms, oh with God. people like who were agoraphobics, with fakers, with attention seekers. And then the Chicago Police Department at one point were driving through the streets and giving verbal warnings about Tylenol through their loudspeaker, oh, which is God. like full-on summer of Sam shit. Like, that is a crazy national panic. So I see that in the context of, like, a riveting geopolitical, or in this case, what's non-geo, just America? Geo- National? Chicago. Geo- a, a Chicagoan... Like a toboggan, the geo kind of area. Uh, just, just a national thriller of everyone, like you know, you know, uh, well, maybe avoiding drinking so they don't get hangovers, or you know, kind of like a do- back in the dark ages kind of thing, which is just seems terrifying. And then the other thing I think is amazing is that before they focused on uh, the police focused on a theory of one perpetrator. By the way, yeah. this this dinging you hear in the background from the horrible construction site next door to us. Um, we've added those effects. We have. We've had them. Because I want you guys to get a real inner city Chicago feel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the construction noises are all add-ons that we've paid almost all of our budget for, for Cracker Jack sound effects. What, they weren't even going to do construction today, and we told <laughs> them, no, come in. You're like, no. Bring shake out all off the trucks. those overalls. <laughs> I, do, I didn't really say that. I was like, overalls. And they're doing a great job. Thanks, guys. <laughs> great um, Before they focused on the idea of of one perpetrator and one murderer in this case, uh, there was a theory that the entire thing was (laughs) perpetrated by a white-collar crime syndicate in order Uh, to damage the Tylenol stock, which is fucking incredible. That's insanity. That's absolute insanity. The idea that someone would kill them. I know. Would kill seven people just to bring Tylenol stock down. But the worst things have happened. Remember that Texas cheerleader mom who killed somebody so her daughter could win? Anyway, um... Yeah, I, I love this as a sort of John Wells, Steven Soderbergh, soundtracky, like, you know, canned beats kind of amazing uh, yeah. thriller. Um, and then also, of course, I'd love to see the moments leading up to the deaths of the seven people, like the mundane, yeah. oh, Betsy has a cold, give her a Tylenol. Um, the, and the family, God, the poor family that all died yeah. on the same day. Like, I envisioned them playing a card game the night before, yeah. having too much wine, and then all needing an aspirin for their hangovers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you kept saying yeah in a way that said you should finish, Matt. So no. Okay. No. No, you made me I paranoid. Just, Are we over time? No, not at all. Um, I was I was worried about how we characterize the victims and making sure that they're presented as purely innocent people in this. And one idea we talked about before was yeah. I'd love to have them played by like the biggest movie stars in the world. Right. So instead of sort of treating them as like, oh yeah, these are the people who need to die for the story to start. <laughs> I want I want like the viewers to really think of them and imbue them with the same love and reverence that they have for the movie stars, these regular lives that were cut short. I'd, I'd like them to like really feel the loss. And I think the way you do that is by casting them with like, it's a great idea. I don't want to name names cause it seems like I'm wishing death on those movie stars. Um, well, Millie Bobby Brown could probably be our 12 year old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's uh, let's call her age. What? And, and also, by the way, the Janice family. I mean, I, I think that any time you can get acting dynasties on screen is great. Like, who could that family be? Could we get yeah. a couple Baldwin's? Could we oh, get yeah. some like? Or should we do the Hadids? 
Gigi and Bella Hadid. Get actual family celebrities. Janet, yeah. Janet, Channing Tatum, Jenna. Oh, wait. Oh, oh I'm sorry, guys. Oh. Love is dead. We're At least Beyonce out. and Jay-Z are going, don't cut that out. Oh. Fine. Tim's being a baby. No, no I'm going to leave well. it. He's it just well. makes me sad. Then cut it out. Oh. Cut, cut it what out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole second half of our story. Have you seen Devil in the... Have you read Devil in the White City? I have read about half of The Devil in the White City. Okay, then you know it is a two-part story. It is about the founder... For me, it is a one-part story. The, the founder of the Chicago <laughs> World Fair, who is doing some of the greatest things humanity can do, constructing a city out of nothing, the White City. Yeah. And then there's a total monster named Holmes who is constructing a house with all these gas chambers where he can kill people. Exactly. Um, Speaking of, quick shout out, if you're not watching Wild Wild Country, what are you doing? Speaking of building entire <laughs> cities, it's so good. Continue to. They're, they did such a great job building that city. I just want to give hats off to the cult in Wild Wild Country. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Art. The irrigation, the roads you built, like fabulous job. I heard there was a shopping mall. I haven't gotten store. to the end. I don't know if they do I'm anything only a part else. Three. But um, oh. yeah, I the mean, the fonts are so terrible on that show. <laughs> Their fonts are disgusting. They're like written in wingdings. Now back to Devil in the White City. Well, we've met the person who represented uh, the good version of humanity, Burke. Yes. Now we're going to meet the person who represents the bad dun, version of dun, humanity. Done, done, Because sometimes movies need antagonists. This guy is a good antagonist. In April 1982, a company called Lakeside Travel goes belly up. This is all according to a great article in the Chicago Reader called Bitter Pill that you can find online. Bear Pill? B- bitter Pill. Bitter Pill, okay. Bitter Pill. Um a woman doesn't get her final check for $511. That is Leanne Lewis. She's one of many employees who gets cheated out of her final check. Her husband, James Lewis, comes to a meeting of all of the employees where they're demanding that they get paid. And the company lawyer finally says you know, to this guy who's making so much noise, like, hey, who, who are you? Do you work here? And he says, no, no, no. And they say, are, are you a lawyer? No. He says, well, what's your deal? And he says, oh, well, my wife works here. And the lawyer says, uh, yeah, you need to go sit in the hall. You have nothing to do with this. So they leave town. They never get their $511, but they nurse a serious grudge against Miller Brewing heir Frederick Miller McKay, the owner of Lakeside Travel. So what do you do when someone cheats you out of five, teach your wife out Lakeside of Lakeside Travel is definitely the travel agency in every horror movie that includes <laughs> the travel agency. Well, Mrs. It, Voorhees, would you like a trip up and down... <laughs> Uh, Niagara Falls here at Lakeside Travel. The deadbeat owner of <laughs> of Lakeside Travel. Yeah, that's not libelous. Um, he didn't pay them. I mean, he's by definition a okay. deadbeat. All right. Um, who's a Miller Brewing heir, Frederick Miller McKay, um, gets a visit from the police one day because Johnson and Johnson has received the following communique, which I'm going to read for you now. A communique is so glamorous. Did I say it right? You did. Oh, good. Okay. It says, in all caps, Gentlemen, as you can see, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easy to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I have spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you Whoa. want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account 8449597 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. Guess who owns that bank account? Deadbeat travel agency owner, Frederick Miller <laughs> McKay. <laughs> he has been framed. 
He has been framed. They've tried to pin all of the, the writer of this letter has tried to pin the Tylenol murders on him because when you cheat someone out of $511, you should be punished by being framed for seven murders. Oh my God. When the police go to this guy and they say, do you have any enemies? He says, yes, actually I do. And he directs them to James Lewis, the husband of Leanne Lewis, who has framed him over... Everyone has such good succinct movie names, too. Yeah, really. James and Leanne Lewis. Yeah. We've got, we got uh, James Burke and James Lewis. So we've got the good and the bad James. James Lewis eventually ends up going to trial for extortion. Um, he insists that he had nothing to do with the actual Tylenol murders. He is finally sent to prison. When he gets to prison, he gets a job in the kitchen where no one will eat anything he prepares. Even though he insists that he had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders, no one quite trusts him. So that's the other ending of the story. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, to the victor go the spoils. <laughs> <laughs> So, what do we think? Have we cast everybody in this? Um, I was saying there's also one more character who wrote, um, which is interesting, who frames himself as a whistleblower, but doesn't surface until about 2011. His name is Scott Bartz, um, who wrote a book called The Tylenol Mafia, and what his bombshell self-published book, I should add, um, take that as you may, uh, uh, proposes is that the tampering, the Tylenol had evidence of tampering at their distribution centers, Whoa. as opposed to what people and the police and the nation assumed was tampering with the bottles on shelves inside retail locations. Wow. Which obviously would put the responsibility or, or any kind of compromise, the, the liability of that onto Tylenol or in Johnson & Johnson. Um, onto Michael looks, Keaton? But I liked Michael his Keaton, character. I know. Well, uh, but also, I mean... He, he was very forthcoming as a CEO. Yeah. So maybe, uh, who knows? Um, but we're not speculating either way because we don't have a lawyer for that. Right, we Marty just, Singer? We just um, don't know. We do not know. But uh, uh, he, this guy, Scott Bartz, looks almost exactly like Paul Sparks, who was the yeah. handsome writer from House of Cards, Tommy Yates, um, or has a little bit of David Harbour in him. So I like the idea of a salty dog self-publishing expose <laughs> writer like with a crack in the case in 2011 <laughs> then he's going to travel back to the 80s to learn secrets never discovered before and transatlantic voice my favorite james lewis we thought bore a bit of a resemblance to will ferrell even though will yes. ferrell is 15 years older than he was he james lewis was about 35 at the time <laughs> will ferrell is about 50 years old now we decided that in 1982 a 35 is the same as a 50 like yes it was an totally time absolutely um and also we we like sorry yeah also we like will ferrell's unabomber and we think his unabomber look could be kind of good for james unabomber Lewis. not unabomber is what you're going with oh yeah an unabomber is a female bomber have we done that joke before no we haven't okay like una thurman unabomber um uh, in espanol <laughs> anyway <laughs> um james james lewis we think will ferrell and it's funny that will ferrell played the unabomber because guess who was at one point suspected of the tylenol murders ted krasinski the unabomber the unabomber the real unabomber the real unabomber I hope post will take away that long delay no i'm gonna leave it in I like, the I like the drama i thought it was cool um <laughs> so i think this is a good story i want to go see it I, like you said, I think it's a feature film for sure. Mm-hmm. Multi, multi parts, different multi segments. I think parts, parts. riveting acts. Um, Michael Keaton, Paul Sparks, 
Millie Bobby Brown as the dead 12-year-old. And Sorry, Will rest Ferrell. in peace. And Will Ferrell. Sounds like an <laughs> A-list ensemble. Works for me. Sony Pictures Classics. Are you listening? Um, <laughs> and you had an idea for a name. I did. Um, I don't know if you remember the seminal film Face Off, mm-hmm. starring Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. And um, at this point, we would have a small footnote if we were writing out a transcript of this podcast. Right. And that footnote would say, next to Face Off, Awesome movie. Awesome movie. Yeah. Um, in the typography for the art on Face Off, there is a small slash between face and off, yeah. which gives you some help in realizing that the movie is really face off. So in the same spirit of that genius marketing, I think that this could be called painkiller, oh. but a slash between pain and killer, because get it, pain. That's genius. Killer. That's a really good name. And Steven Soderbergh directed a film called Side Effects, and this could be wow. his follow-up. This could be like a side project. It could be his medical trilogy (laughs) wrap-up. And the name... Wrap, wrap, wrap-up. The name that I had, that I... Well, it was so good, I tried to copyright it. It's apparently not available. Good white guy, bad white guy? Uh, No, it was Total Recall. (laughs) That's right. Um, Because they couldn't really get you on... Like, you'd win that on a default in court. Yeah, I guess the IP lawyers. I don't want to get in that fight. You don't. That's not. It's not. It's not your fight, Tim. And I don't want to be affiliated with that remake. No, we just want to fight with the construction workers <laughs> next door. That's all. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, but we have a very new and ambitious portion to this that we're going to share with you. We want to open up our worldview a lot. Yeah. And hear your ideas. Yeah. Um, I I am told there's a way for us to get a hotline set up, so I'm going to endeavor to get that set up so you guys can call in. We can hear your beautiful ASMR-like voices on our podcast with your ideas. But for now, Tim, <laughs> tell people what you want and where they can send it. They can email me, And Tim. what can they email you? Their ideas of stuff we should cover on the Shoot This Now podcast. Yes. That would be perfect. Cool. At my email address, Tim, T-I-M, at T-H-E-W-R-A-P dot com. Dot com. The rap dot com. Um, and uh, I will immediately CC Matt. I will not steal your idea. Thank you. I will not leave the country no. and write that screenplay. No. We'll make sure it gets into a future episode of Shoot This Now, and maybe we'll even invite you to join us for the taping. And... Uh... Also, yes, exactly. If we love the idea so much, maybe you can come on down and we'll give you some Cliff Bars and some Cafe Bustello and we'll just get this magic done together. I got Tylenol. Super safe. Ah, extra strength. If you could take my pulse right now, it would feel just like a sledgehammer. If you could feel my